Good afternoon, everyone, and greetings to all our guests. Welcome. As you see, I have quite a few books. We're going to be here quite a long time today. <clears throat> but uh, good to see you all, and uh, what a wonderful choral singing that was from our children, the children's choir, Give Me Oil in My Lamp. They all sang on tune, which is better than most of us can do sometimes. But just beautiful. They sang out, just as we heard in the sermonette, praising God. So thank you, children. That was just beautiful. Well, greetings to all our friends and brethren around the world. Uh, this past week has been quite a busy week. Uh, Dr. Meredith and I each taped a telecast. And uh, Mr. Baca, who gave the opening prayer, our manager of production, media production, just as I was about to tape the telecast on the missing message last Thursday, all of a sudden, well, before that, he said, everything seems to be working really well. He shouldn't have said that. <laughs> because just as I was about to start to tape, what would happen? Well, there are air conditioning units on the roof of the media building over here, 5,000 square feet, and all of a sudden, I, one of the air conditioning units must have had a drain block, so rain started coming down where? Right exactly in front of the camera as I was about to speak. Out of 5,000 square feet, where would the rain drip? Right in front of me in the camera. Well, we had a little uh, fun with that, and uh, thankfully... Uh, using the all-powerful solution, you know what that is, duct tape. Uh, <laughs> Mr. Stevens went up and, and, uh, and uh, held back the uh, flood. But uh, anyway, uh, <clears throat> it seemed to go well, but uh, later on it started dripping, and I started laughing, and uh, but Mr. Bach said, well, we can't see that on the... Uh, you know, on the screen and uh, through the camera, I said, drip number four, drip number five. Anyway, uh, thankfully, it finally uh, completed and we uh, it stopped. So hopefully we'll f have a final solution to uh, the air conditioning. But it uh, just seems that someone did not want the message to go out, perhaps. We had a uh, church board meeting this past Thursday. Uh, as you heard the announcement, Dr. Dr. Wernail traveled yesterday to New York for our regional conference this weekend. We've edited the, edited the November-December Living Church News, which I feel is an excellent addition. I hope you get to read all of that when it, uh, you get back from the feast. A Living University held its forum and assembly for our on-site students this week. And then two weeks from today is the Feast of Trumpets, uh, reminding us of the great announcement in Revelation 11 and verse 15. God's Word, the Bible, reveals our glorious future and the destiny for all humanity. The Bible is the world's bestseller. But what is America's favorite book? The Harris Interactive Poll investigated that question. And on April 8, 2008, it reported the following. Across all demographic groups, the number one book, number one favorite book in the United States is the Bible. And that's behind, behind the Bible, the Civil War is still being fought as Margaret Mitchell's Gone with the Wind comes in second. But at least the Bible's still the America's favorite book. The poll concluded uh, that it was the favorite book, but how much, I want to ask, do Americans know about the Bible, and how much do you know about the Bible? Uh, recently, I encouraged many of you to memorize the 66 books in the Bible. The next level of understanding and accomplishment 
was to know the 49 books of the Bible as counted in the inspired order. I talked with one of the former teachers of Imperial School who taught, uh, who knew about the first and second graders and what they were taught and what they were required to memorize. First graders were required to memorize in Imperial Schools back in Pasadena years ago. And I don't know, do we have any Imperial School graduates from here? Okay. Um, glad to Mrs. Mullis. Uh, so maybe we'll talk to you later what you had to memorize. <clears throat> but as far as he remembered, first graders had to remember 1 Corinthians 13, memorize. Uh, memorize Matthew 5 in three or four sections. They had to know the 12 tribes of Israel. They had to know the 12 apostles. They had to know the holy days and the festivals in order, the fruits of the Spirit, and the armor of God. Now, he thought that the second and third graders had to know all 66 books of the Bible. So I hope that some of you have come up now to that level of second or third grade. You know all 66 books of the Bible. And then, of course, they had to know the Ten Commandments long form as third graders. So, brethren, I hope that you know that you have a responsibility of knowing the Bible. Jesus Christ, of course, expects you to know the Bible. In the book of Matthew, for example, he challenges critics. He said four times in the book of Matthew, Have you not read? Would you want Jesus to say that to you? Of course, because you didn't have an answer or you didn't understand something. And an additional two times he said, Have you never read? So I hope that all of us have read the Bible. Of course, some of you may not have read the Bible uh, completely through. I think I've told you before how the first time I read the New King James Bible, it's good to carry your sword with you, I, uh, it had a uh, reading program in it. And uh, for every day of the year, you could read a selection from the Old Testament and one from the New Testament. And I completed that year-long program in a year and a half. But at least I completed it. But it was good just reading, checking it off. I have read this and I read that. And uh, I, again, want to encourage all of you, if you've not fully read, how many of you fully read the whole Bible? Oh, fantastic. That's wonderful. That's 91.3%. Uh, Very good. Let's turn to Matthew, the 19th chapter, for example, and just see that what Christ expects of us in terms of understanding Doctrine, understanding teaching, understanding the Bible. This is on marriage and divorce. Matthew 19, verse 1. Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these sayings that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. A great multitude followed him and he healed them there. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he answered to the answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them in the, at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? Haven't you read that? Aren't you aware of that? So Jesus expects us to know our Bible. When he was tempted by Satan, he used the sword of the Spirit. He quoted Scripture. And that was an awesome temptation. When you think about the horrible temptations that come along, and I've told you before about 
how Satan just flooded my mind when I was first coming into the church with horrible thoughts. And I had to battle those thoughts. And I memorized Philippians 4, 4, 8 as a counter to those wrong thoughts and kept repeating the right thoughts in my mind to get rid of the wrong thoughts. Whatsoever things are true, honest, just, pure, lovely, of a good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. And putting right thoughts in my mind expelled the wrong thoughts out of my mind. And the same with Jesus. That most blasphemous thought came into Jesus' mind. He had to process that thought. But he expelled it immediately. He said, it is written when Satan said, bow down and worship me. Can you think of a worse thought? And Jesus said, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So Christ fought with the word of God. He fought that blasphemous thought. And, of course, when he said, If you be the Son of God, command these stones to be bread. And Jesus said, It is written. And he quoted from what? Deuteronomy 8 and verse 3. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So how did Jesus win that battle? He won that battle by resisting temptation and relying on God's word. Let's turn to Ephesians, the sixth chapter. Ephesians 6. Yes, the children, first graders, had to memorize the armor of God. They had to know all the elements of that armor here in Ephesians 6. And, of course, we are in a spiritual warfare. Ephesians 6 and verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord, in the power of His might. So we feel weak from time, those of us who are over 50 years of age. Well, over 70, uh, sometimes feel a little weak at times, and we have to rely on God's strength. Rely on the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God. Well, you have to do something. You have to put it on, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. There's a great deal of evil power, spirit power, that's evil. Uh, Dr. Meredith has effectively uh, preached about that on the telecast, about the warfare, what's behind the nation's warfare from time to time. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, Ephesians 6, verse 13, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. We have to do something. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth. As Jesus said, your word is truth in his prayer, John 17, 17. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And, of course, all God's commandments are righteousness. Psalm 119, verse 172. And having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith, with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked and take the helmet of salvation, which goes on your mind. What are you thinking? And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplications for all the saints. You notice there are six elements to the armor of God, but he says to go on and to be praying for all the saints and for him, and for the ministry, that utterance may be given to me, he says, 
that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. Yes, the word of God, that is the sword of God, is the word of God. And Jesus used that sword um, in his battle with Satan. How sharp, I want to ask you today, is your sword? God tells us to take the sword of the Spirit. The title of the sermon today is The Sword of the Spirit. Every once in a while, we need to review the fundamentals. So I'm going to touch on the fundamentals today. Dr. Meredith, last week in his powerful sermon, uh, challenged us to know that we know God exists and to know that the Bible is God's Word. So what proves to you that God exists? What proves to you that the Bible is the Word of God? You should have an answer to that. I asked my wife this morning, and uh, maybe I'll share that answer with you later. But how important is the Bible to you? We all need to be able to give answers to those questions. But first, let's take a look at how the world views the Bible and how well the world knows the Bible. <clears throat> the top ten Bible translations, according to the Harris Interactive Poll, are as follows. Of course, it mentions that it is America's favorite book. Number one is the New International Version. Two, King James Version. Three, the New King James Version, which is what we use in our publications and the telecast and which we recommend for primary use. The New Living Translation, number four, and the English Standard Version, number five. But how well does the world know the Bible? Dr. Meredith wrote an article in this past March-April, Tomorrow's World Magazine, March-April 2009, titled The Problem of Biblical Illiteracy. And we've identified, uh, sorry, among some of us certain biblical illiteracy. And we're trying to correct that among those of us who are weak in some areas. He writes in that article, quote, religious, respected religious author Stephen Prothero, chairman of the religion department of Boston University, reminds us, Surveys that are more scientific have found that only one of three U.S. citizens is able to name the four Gospels. Only one of three can say the Gospels are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And one of ten thinks that Joan of Arc was Noah's wife. Now, of course, it's kind of a setup, too, because it probably is a multiple-choice, you know, question, and so... Joan of Arc was Noah's wife. That's really clever. <clears throat> no wonder pollster George Gallup has concluded that the United States is a nation of biblical illiterates. And that's from the Charlotte Observer, March 18, 2007. Dr. Meredith concludes that paragraph. That is why people can often become confused about biblical teaching on abortion, homosexuality, and other supposedly controversial topics. And then, of course, uh, recently, just this past week, uh, the Idaho state government had stopped one school from using the Bible even as a literary classic. The Associated Press reported that uh, a public charter school has sued Idaho officials in federal court, saying the state illegally barred use of the Bible as an instructional text. The academy said the Bible would likely be introduced in the ninth grade when students delve into the history of Western civilization, 
and taught for its literacy and historic qualities as a part of a secular education program. But the commissioners said the school could not use the Bible. So they are suing the state, and uh, the lawsuit states that despite the fact that public schools across the state utilize the Bible and other religious texts routinely in their curriculum, out of the hundreds of public schools throughout the state of Idaho, defendants have thus far singled out only an academy for this censorship. So here, even a school just wanted to use this book as a literary classic to show culture and history, and the state says, you cannot use that Bible in your classes. You know, with that kind of attitude, with that kind of approach, our nation, as we have said over and over again, when it rejects the Bible, it is headed for disaster. Well, let's look a little more about the attitudes towards the Bible. In an article, or that is a survey by a Gallup poll, the United States uh, versus Canada, different reads on the good book, January 4, 2005. Twice as many Americans as Canadians believe that the Bible is the actual Word of God and is to be taken literally, 34% versus 17% respectively. About half of both Americans and Canadians, 48% and 51%, agree that the Bible is the inspired Word of God, but not everything in it should be taken literally. And we just heard earlier uh, that we're to live by every word of God and not just be hearers of the word, but doers. Fifteen percent of Americans believe the Bible is an ancient book of fables, legends, history, and moral precepts recorded by man, while 29 percent of Canadians agree. And how many of you have come across people, as I have, a salesman one time, and said, well, you can't believe the Bible. A uh, Protestant minister, when I told him I was leaving the church and going to start keeping the Sabbath, he said, well, you can't believe the whole Bible. My jaw dropped open. I, what? I mean, here you are, a minister, supposedly a minister of God, and you're saying you can't believe all of the Bible. Um, I, uh, I've maybe told that story before, but my wife, when she went to Pasadena, was told by her mother, well, now, Catherine, make sure you check with your Protestant minister out there because, you know, you're going to Ambassador College in Pasadena. So she dutifully honored her mother, even though she already had a college degree, went to the local uh, Protestant minister and, and asked him what he thought about the Bible. And uh, in the course of the conversation, he said, well, you know, you can't uh, believe everything in some of my stories. And my wife said, well, like what? Well, like the story of Jonah and uh, well, you know, you can't, that's just a story. And he had previously said, well, you know, if Jesus said it, it was true. And so my wife caught him and says, you know, Jesus said that, that uh, talked about Jonah in the whale. And he kind of looked surprised at what? I mean, yeah. uh, anyway, I'm glad she caught him. You're trying to say, is this an educated, you know, pastor of a large Protestant church? And he, he says, you know, well, you've got to believe Jesus, but you can't believe that Jonah was ever in a, uh, the belly of a great fish. So it's really sad. You know, the Bible is to be believed. Only 40%, and that is uh, 29% of Canadians, think that the Bible is an ancient book of fables, legends, history, and moral precepts recorded by man. One-third of Americans believe the Bible is literally true. 
Well, that's, uh, but again, thankfully that one-third believe that. Um, but are they actually obeying it? About one in five Americans believe the Bible is an ancient book of fables, legends, history, and moral precepts recorded by man. So what is your attitude towards the Bible? Is it just, well, this is something that sits on my coffee table? We used to hear, you know, Mr. Armstrong years ago say, find your Bible, blow the dust off your Bible, and open it up and start reading it. Dr. Meredith's article in the July-August 2001 Tomorrow's World magazine was titled, What is Your Attitude Toward the Bible? He quotes from Bishop J.C. Ryle's 1890 classic, Light from Old Times, who gave this warning. Quote, While we sleep, an onslaught is being mounted against us, an onslaught which the Protestant churches of our land were never, never less ready to sustain. Anglican and nonconformist leaders alike have thrown away the only weapon that could defend us, the sword of the Spirit, the infallible Word of God, the Word of God alone, the grace of God alone, the power of the Spirit alone. These were the watch cries which prevailed 400 years ago. They are not the watch cries of our Protestant pupils' pulpits today. And Dr. Meredith concludes, our generation basically rejects this approach to the Bible. This rejection is leading to a degree of religious chaos never experienced before. On this cynical, rebellious, God-rejecting generation will fall the great tribulation which Jesus Christ predicted, Matthew 24, 21. And then he asks, so what about you? That was in our Tomorrow's World magazine, July, August 2001. So what should our attitude be? What scripture would you quote to say, this is my biblical attitude toward the word of God? I'm sure you could come up with several scriptures, but Isaiah 66.2 is a prominent one. As God says, But on this one will I look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit, and who trembles at my word. Now I ask myself, do I tremble at God's word? Am I convicted by God's word? Do I believe it? Am I going to live by it? When I was an Amer ambassador freshman, I looked at Bible study as a chore. Oh, I, you know, I've got to do it. Well, certainly we need to discipline ourselves. And uh, I discipline myself uh, by reading the Bible every day. Of course, I'm reading the Bible as a part of my normal chores and editorial and television work. But I make myself read the Bible every day, and sometimes it just comes naturally. But I was told by a uh, senior, uh, he was giving me some advice on how to like to study the Bible rather than just uh, thinking of it as a chore. He said, what you need to do, Dick, is to study the Bible one hour a day for a week. He said, you may find it, a, you know, uh, more of a chore and, and something you won't want to do, but as you study it, Day after day, you'll begin to like Bible study. And so the first day, I started, okay, read the Bible, study the Bible for an hour. And uh, after about the last 20 minutes, I began to really get into it. I Hey, this is really exciting. This is interesting. The next day, I think uh, after about 20 minutes, then I enjoyed the last 40 minutes. And about the third day, I began to enjoy the whole hour. Let's turn to... Psalm 25, verse 4 and 5. 
So I think for some of you, you might find that Bible study is a drudge, a chore, maybe it's just something you have to do rather than something you like to do. Well, obviously, if you don't want to do it, you should make yourself do it. That's called character, doing what you should do, even though you have temptations to do the opposite. But Psalm 25 is an attitude that you should have towards God's Word. Show me your ways, Psalm 25, verse 4. Show me your ways, O Eternal. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. How is God going to teach you? Through His Word. Your Word is truth, Jesus said. Sanctify your, your children by your truth. Your Word is truth. We already quoted John 17, 17. David goes on to pray, For you are the God of my salvation. On you I wait all the day. We need that teachable attitude. And we need to know the fundamentals. We need to know that God does exist, and He's the God of the Bible, the God of creation. As Dr. Meredith in his powerful telecast this past Wednesday when he taped it, it was 2010 in prophecy, was saying, you need to know the God of the Bible because there are other false gods all over the world that are not the God of the Bible. So what is your foundation for truth? Living University and Ambassador College motto is the word of God is the foundation of knowledge. So what personally proves God's existence to you? You know, we have uh, Dr. Winnell's booklet, The Real God, Proofs and Promises. And if you are still struggling and you don't know whether God exists or you haven't proven God exists, you need to establish that fundamental. Make sure you read that book, The Real God, Proofs and Promises. And some say, well, I, I just take it on faith. I don't need to prove it. Well, yes, you do need to prove it because God says, prove all things, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 21. And you all should know the seven traditional tr- proofs of God. Creation um, demands a creator. Uh, law demands a lawgiver. Life demands a life giver. Creation, law, design, uh, life, design demands a designer. And then again, uh, fulfilled prophecy, answered prayer, and God sustains all things by the word of his power. As it says in Hebrews 1, he sustains the universe. And of course, uh, in this booklet, you'll find the real God promises, the fulfilling of God's promises is another perspective in proving God's existence. But I, in my teaching of uh, Fundamentals of Theology at Ambassador College years ago, I asked that question of our students. What proves to you personally? You can name the seven traditional proofs of God's existence. What, what proves to you personally that God exists? One student raised his hand in the class. He said, I know God exists because he has intervened for me personally in my life. He has answered my prayers. And if he didn't intervene for me, I would be dead now. As he knew his behaviors were leading to what would have caused his death. But he personally said, I know that God exists because he lives, he intervened in my life. Let's turn to 1 John, the second chapter, 1 John 2. And of course, when God shakes the earth, uh, individuals should understand that God does exist. I think I mentioned in I guess that was the article, Tomorrow's World article on prayer, 
about one of my friends, well, he was an ambassador faculty member who was at the Battle of the Bulge, and he was 18 years old, and he said there were these armaments, uh, shells that would come in and they would be phosphorus and they'd burst in the, in the trees and scatter shrapnel all over. And he told me, he said, there were no atheists there that day. He said they were trying to remember every boyhood prayer they could remember. So God is going to shake the earth, as he says. But First John 2, here in uh, verse 3, First John 2, in verse 3, By this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. How do you know that you know him? Now, the first stage of a relationship with God is belief. The second stage is knowing. And the third stage is knowing that you know. I think uh, Dr. Winnell said that in the recent sermon, that know that you know that you know that you know. Well, uh, here it is. You know that you know that God exists. By this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. And, of course, Jesus said, if you will enter into life, keep the commandments, Matthew 19 and verse 7. Many books are out on the market now that uh, give evidence to God's creation. Let's just turn back to Romans 1 briefly. Of course, God says that in Psalm 14 that the fool has said in his heart there is no God. So if there's uh, atheists, uh, God calls fools if they say in their heart there is no God. But here in Romans, the first chapter, it says in verse 20, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. Romans 1.20, Being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. There's so many evidences for God. Uh, some of you have read the book uh, or have, are familiar with the book, The Privileged Planet. Uh, this is by Guillermo Gonzalez and J.W. Richards. And I'll just read the final uh, paragraph of his book. Uh, these men investigated the universe, and uh, one of the elements they discovered was how the earth is precisely positioned in the Milky Way, not only for life, but also to allow us to find answers to the great mysteries of the universe. In other words, when you look at all of the planets, as one of the astronomers did, one of the authors did, from all of the planets around, those planets do not have access to view out into the universe as we do from planet Earth. He concludes in the book here, and there is a DVD that goes along with it, and uh, if anyone has it, we'd uh, like to borrow it back. Uh, it's a DVD on the privileged planet, very uh, effective uh, DVD, and perhaps we could even show it at a Bible study here sometime. Page 3335, conclusion. As we stand gazing at the heavens beyond our little oasis, we gaze not into a meaningless abyss, but into a wondrous arena commensurate with our capacity for discovery. Perhaps we have also been staring past a cosmic signal far more significant than any mere sequence of numbers, a signal revealing a universe so skillfully crafted for life and discovery 
that it seems to whisper of an extraterrestrial intelligence immeasurably more vast, more ancient, and more magnificent than anything we've been willing to expect or imagine. I think it's very well written. And, of course, the answer to that is in the Bible. When I asked my, my wife, what proves to you that the Bible is God's Word? She said, the Bible reveals so much. It reveals about human nature. You know, John 17, is it uh, Jeremiah 17, 9? The heart is deceitful above all and, and wicked. You know, it's, it's sick, it's ill, and deceitful above all else. So God does reveal so much even through the creation. I mentioned to you before, I'll just mention it briefly, uh, Bill Bryson's book, A Short History of Nearly Everything. Uh, he's quite a scientist, and he writes it in, in uh, uh, familiar or friendly terms so that uh, novices can understand the science and the development of it. And he obviously is trying to present it from an agnostic or an evolutionary point of view. But he uses the words miracle. And he said, wow, if this is true, how, you know, how amazing it is that this can be this way. Uh, he just gives one example that I'll, I'll cite here, and that is the protein collagen. A protein consists of collagen consists of 1,055 amino acids. And he points out they have to be in the exact order because there are 22 amino acids. And you have to have amino acid number 5, amino acid number 22, amino acid number, all in the direct order for a string of 1,055 amino acids. And he says it's like a slot machine at Las Vegas, 90 feet long. And just imagine all these wheels, 1,055 wheels, and you're pulling on the wheels, and every one of those 1,055 wheels has to come up with the exact right amino acid in order to produce this protein of collagen. And he said the chances of that are less than 10 to how many thousands of zeros, hundreds of zeros after it. The chances are less than all of the atoms in the universe, is what he says. Can you imagine that? And yet he goes on as if, you know, all of this just happened. It just happened naturally. So the proof is out there. The evidence is out there. We need to know that God exists. So after the sermon today, you might ask one another, not to put someone on the defensive, but just to give someone an opportunity to personally share what proves to you that God exists, what personally proves to you that God exists. That is foundational. When we're counseling people for baptism, that is the number one question. Have you proven God exists and that he's the God of creation? The second question, of course, we need to answer is, is the Bible the word of God? Did God inspire it? Let's turn to the claim of the Bible, 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16. 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16. It's a memorization verse. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine or teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, 
Uh, some of us feel incomplete, but we are complete in Christ, as the Apostle Paul wrote in another section. That the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. The King James Version says it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. I think most of you know, if you don't, the Greek word inspiration of God or is inspired by God is the Greek word theonoustos, which means God breathed. And the NIV states it this way, all scripture is God breathed. That's an accurate translation. The English Standard Version translates it, scripture is breathed out by God. Now, what do we believe as a church? In the Mystery of the Ages book, Mr. Herbert Armstrong described the result of his personal struggle and study. This is from page 25, Mystery of the Ages. Quote, The essential point here is the simple fact that I did find irrefutable proof of the divine inspiration and supreme authority of the Holy Bible, then parentheses, as originally written. And that's a key as the revealed word of God. Even all the so-called contradictions evaporated upon unbiased studies. So I would encourage all of you to, again, uh, read our official statement of fundamental beliefs. Um, Mr. Stroud, uh, who gave the sermonette, uh, who works downstairs in MPD. For, so if some of you are new here, and would like a, an official statement of the church's fundamental beliefs, uh, see Mr. Stroud, who gave the uh, sermonette uh, this morning and this afternoon, and he'll be able to get you a copy of uh, our official statement of fundamental beliefs. Again, what is the Bible? Well, it is this sword, it's metaphorically a sword, the Word of God. Let's turn to Hebrews, the fourth chapter. Again, see just how powerful this word is Hebrews the fourth chapter and verse 11 Hebrews 4 and verse 11 let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest he's speaking of a millennial rest and also the seventh day Sabbath rest and all the critics say well there's no evidence in the New Testament, that we ought to be keeping the Seventh-day Sabbath. I'll just digress here briefly uh, to show you a slam dunk, as we call it in basketball, where he says here in uh, verse uh, 9, there remains therefore a rest for the people of God. And again, the Greek word is sabbatismos here, which means a keeping of the Sabbath. The Anchor Bible Dictionary points out that the word sabbatismos in secular literature always meant a Sabbath convocation, a convocation the seventh day of the week. In secular literature, the Greek word sabbatismos. You can check that. I have an Anchor Bible Dictionary in my office. If you'd like to check it, you're very welcome. But notice verse 10. For he who has entered into his rest, and the Greek here is katapozon, has himself also ceased from his own works. How? As God did from his. If you are going to enter into God's rest, which I hope all of you do, 
the spiritual rest, the millennial rest. How should you do that? The same way God did from His. How did God rest? Notice back here in verse 4. For He has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all His works. So all you have to ask as you read verse 9 and 10 is how did God rest from His works? Verse 4 tells us He rested on the seventh day. It's a slam dunk. There's no way of getting around it. Even from the Greek use in secular literature of the word sabbatismos was a convention. It was a convening on the seventh day. Well, that's an aside. That's a, a, a bonus for you, not intended in the original notes. But he tells us here in verse 11, Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, to be converted, and the millennial rest, which he's using here uh, symbolically, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. For the word of God, how, what is the word of God like? Is living. You know, Jesus said, John 6.63, The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit, and they are life. John 6.63 For the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Oh, you just can't fool God. And if you ask God to reveal to you your own human nature, He will. You look into the mirror of God's laws. He tells you to do in James, the second chapter, but you don't go away forgetting what you've seen. You see that there are changes that must be made, and you will go about with your whole heart and God's help to make those changes. So that's one description of the Word of God. Our forefathers of the United States certainly looked to the Bible as foundational for the prosperity and blessings of this country. George Washington said, quote, it is impossible to rightly govern the world without God and the Bible. Again, the two foundational keystones upon which you make decisions, the two foundational keystones upon which you base your life and your future and your eternity. You need to know that God exists and He's the God of creation. And you need to know that the Bible is the Word of God because it gives you the promise, the insight, the revelation of who, what, why, when, where, and what your future is and what the future of the, the world is. George Washington said, It is impossible to rightly govern the world without God and the Bible. The great American statesman Daniel Webster gave this warning about our national future. Quote, If there is anything in my thoughts or style to commend, the credit is due to my parents for instilling in me an early love of the Scriptures. If we abide by the principles taught in the Bible, our country will go on prospering and to prosper. But if we in our posterity neglect its instructions and authority, no man can tell how sudden a catastrophe may overwhelm us and bury all our glory in profound obscurity. He may not have known that he was prophesying, but that's what's going to happen. And we see that 20% of Americans think that the Bible is just myth and fantasy. And even those who believe that it is true, whether they are living by it or not. 
So, brethren, do we really respect the Bible? Do we desire to know it? Do we desire to live by it? As Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Do we appreciate having the Bible available to us? I've mentioned before about those who were martyred as they were trying to translate the Bible into English. And you take it for granted. I take it for granted. But back in the uh, 16th century, uh, people did not have access to the Bible. They had to trust their priest or whoever it may be that they would interpret the Bible for them without having access to the Bible. William Tyndale was the first that has produced the first English translation uh, directly from the Hebrew and Greek texts. And he was sought after by the Roman church, was strangled and burned at the stake in 1535 near Brussels in Belgium. There are others who have sacrificed their lives that we can see the Bible. We have access to it. We take it for granted. One survey found that 97% of American homes have a Bible, and many homes have two or three Bibles. Thank God that we have access to the Bible. Let's turn to Acts, sorry, Amos, the eighth chapter. Amos, the eighth chapter. You know, one of the scriptures says, Seek you the Lord while he may be found. Isaiah 55, verse 6. Because there is a time when God will not allow himself to be found. And time is getting short. Isaiah 8 and verse 11. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord Eternal, that I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread nor thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Eternal. There is coming a time when God stops this work on earth, when people are going to go, wow, where is... Where is the world tomorrow? Where, is the, where are some ministers that know what's happening, what's going on? There will be a famine of the Word. And I think that should sober all of us to realize that we don't have that much time. We better take advantage of the access that we have to the Word while it is available. The next question I want to ask you is, what proves to you that the Bible is the Word of God? Or so we have the uh, booklet, The Bible, Fact or Fiction, that can give you uh, evidence and help your faith. I want to perhaps share with you, as time has, I'm uh, actually into the first um, third of my sermon, so we have two more hours, I think it was, to go here. Uh, obviously, it's going to be a part two, I think, coming up here. <clears throat> But let's discuss briefly uh, one or two of the proofs of the Bible. Uh, one, of course, is fulfilled prophecy. We think of all the prophecies in the Bible. You've seen them on our telecast time and time again. We talk about uh, Daniel, the second chapter. We talk about uh, Revelation, Matthew 24, uh, all of the various prophecies in the Bible. But one example of divine intervention, we'll just take a look at one example of Fulfilled prophecy. Let's turn to Isaiah, the 44th chapter. Isaiah 44. And uh, this is from the booklet, to Fulfilled Prophecy, God's Hand in World Affairs. Well, anyway, it's around somewhere. 
uh, chose a hand with a, a globe on it. Isaiah 44 and verse 28, the last verse. Here, Isaiah prophesies of an individual who does not exist until 200 years later, names him by name, who says of Cyrus, verse 28, He is my shepherd, and he shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, You shall be built, and to the temple your foundation shall be laid. Thank you very much. Uh, this is the booklet I'm referring to, Prophecy Fulfilled, God's Hand in World Affairs. Uh, shares this particular example that I'm giving you now. Notice he says in verse 27, who says to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up your rivers. But what is this talking about? There was a man who came along, Cyrus the Great, the king of the Persian Empire, who came along 200 years after Isaiah prophesied of this individual. And he prophesied that he would do something very special, that the rivers would be dried up. And he goes on to say, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, he's God's anointed, chapter 45, verse 1, to subdue nations before him, to loose the armor of kings, to open before him the double doors so that the gates will not be shut. So what is that talking about? Well, around 740 to 720 B.C., Isaiah gave this particular prophecy. And today many scholars say that uh, those scriptures must have been, been written at the time of Cyrus. No, they were written about 200 years earlier. What are the double doors that Isaiah is talking about? It has to do with the doors of the Babylonian captivity. Remember the handwriting on the wall. That night when uh, Belshazzar saw the handwriting on the wall, Cyrus and the armies came into Babylon. And this is what Herodotus writes in his history. So greatly reduced the depth of the water, that is what Cyrus did, because if you know the architecture of Babylon, it was a walled city, but it had a river going through the middle of the city, but it had huge doors on each end of that river, so you couldn't even get in. Uh, through the river. It was just the gates, the doors were low enough so that an army could not get into the city. It was basically impregnable. But what Cyrus did was to divert the river above Babylon so that the waters dried up and he and his army were able to go under the door into the city. Well, this is what Herodotus uh, wrote. Cyrus and his non-combatant troops, quote, so greatly reduced the depth of water in the actual bed of the river that it became fordable. And the Persian army, which had been left at Babylon for the purpose, entered the river, now, now only deep enough to reach about the middle of a man's thigh, and making their way along it, got into the town. If the Babylonians had learned what Cyrus was doing or had seen for themselves in time, they could have let the Persians enter, and then by shutting all the gates which led to the waterside and manning the walls on either side of the river, they could have caught them in a trap and wiped them out. But as it was, they were taken by surprise. The Babylonians themselves say that owing to the great size of the city, the outskirts were captured without the people in the center knowing anything about it. There was a festival going on, and they continued to dance and enjoy themselves until they learned the news the hard way. That, then, is the story of the first capture of Babylon. 
and that's from the history of Herodotus, book, book 1, pages 191 through 192. So again, uh, God's word and the prophecy about the succession of empires, the Babylonian succession uh, empire, then the Medo-Persian empire that followed right after it. And uh, Greek historian and other secular historic sources such as Xenophon's Chiropedia, uh, Chiropedia also support that account. So that's just one of them. And then, of course, in uh, our Tomorrow's World magazine, we had uh, quotes about uh, Mr. Armstrong's writings and uh, predictions about what was going to happen in Eastern Europe. Uh, this was uh, from Tomorrow's World magazine. Uh, Mr. Armstrong wrote back in 1950, quote, No all-out full-scale wars prophesied between Russia and the United States. The famous prophecy of Ezekiel 38 and 39 foretells a Russian invasion of Palestine much later, not against the North American continent. And that's the Plain Truth magazine, August 1950. The title of this section is America's End-Time Enemy, Russia or Germany. And this is a remarkable quote as well. The Good News, April 1952. This is 37 years before the fall of the Berlin Wall. And remember, some of you know, I hope that you remember, it was November 1989 when the Berlin Wall came down and Russia had to give up all of its eastern uh, nations, the eastern part of Europe, and eastern Berlin was made free. No, that was 1989, just, what, 20 years ago. This is what Mr. Armstrong said uh, 37 years before that. Quote, this is the good news, April 1952, page 16. Quote, Russia may give East Germany back to the Germans and will be forced to relinquish her control over Hungary. Now, how could anyone say that 37 years in advance? Germans will be forced to relinquish her control over Hungary Czechoslovakia and parts of Austria to complete the ten-nation union. Europe will have a free hand to destroy America and Britain as prophesied. Yes, we're heading towards that fulfillment as time goes on. There are many more other proofs of the uh, Bible. Let me just state one more. I'll skip over proofs number two, four, two, three, and four and jump to proof number five and <clears throat> give those a little later. And again, these are, are not in the booklet, but I remember uh, listening to a radio pro program by Mr. Herbert Armstrong recently, an old one, uh, just heard it on tape, and uh, he was saying virtually the same thing, that history, science, fulfilled prophecy, prove the Bible. But there's another one that will not prove to uh, agnostics or critics, and that is answered prayer. Answered prayer based on the Bible. How many prayers have been answered? He, Mr. Armstrong said he had thousands of prayers answered. And I thought to myself, how many prayers have I had answered? Well, God called me in 1961. That was 48 years ago. And I know I've prayed every day in faith that God would guide me. And if I'm praying in faith and I don't see the answer, see, I've learned a lesson one time that I asked God to encourage everyone by a speech I gave. It was my last speech my freshman year, and it was called just write a postcard. It was a stir-to-action speech. 
I thought, I really put my heart in my prayer, and I prayed that, that you know, my students, my fellow students would really respond to this stir to action. Since we were leaving for the summer, my stir to action speech was, write a postcard this summer. Some, simple, easy to perform. Your spokesman need to know a stir to action speech requires that. Something simple and concrete to perform. Write a postcard. No one responded. I thought, oh, this is a failure, a flub. I wrote postcards that summer. I wrote to the lady who became my wife. I wrote postcards that summer. But it was six months later, around November of that year, one of my fellow students who was in that class said, Dick, you know that speech you gave back there about writing postcards? That was really helpful. The confirmation didn't come until six months later. I prayed in faith, and I knew, but I was disappointed because I didn't get the evidence that God had heard my prayer the day I gave that speech. But God confirmed it six months later. So I have prayed in faith, and I try to think, how many prayers have been answered? Well, 48 years times 365 days is 17,520 days. And in faith, I believe I've had at least one prayer answered every day in the 48 years. So I've had at least, in my mind, at least 17,520 prayers answered. I hope you can say the same. And those prayers are based on the Word of God. And that gets into the matter of claiming God's promises. When you know that the Bible is a treasure house of promises, golden guarantees, pearls of promise, I call them, just over the top of your head. Matthew 7, 7. Ask and you shall receive. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. I practice that. Philippians 4, 19. My God shall provide all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Ephesians 3, 20. God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. And I've claimed that promise. Can God do exceedingly abundantly above all that you ask or think? Yes, he can. And I can tell you some stories about it. I don't have time now. I've told you before. So claim God's promises. It's actually one of our sermons, number 282, uh, you can find in our library. So, brethren, we've just touched on some of the fundamentals today. God's Word, the sword of the Spirit, should be a powerful tool in your hands. We heard in the sermonette of the four absolutes of prayer, Bible study, fasting, and meditation. God's Word is the foundation of all knowledge. We need to study that Word. We need to read that Word. And again, I would encourage all of you, if you have not completed the uh, Bible study course, and I'm sorry to ask you again, but for our new people here, I'd like to just ask you again, how many of you have completed the Tomorrow's World Bible study course, all 24 lessons? You see your hands. Okay, we've got, uh, oh, I thought it would be better than that, but we got about 20.3% uh, of you've completed all 24 lessons. So, again, I encourage all of you to um, diligently get into the study. There is going to be a famine of the Word. And what will you say when, oh, when that time comes, oh, I wish I had studied the Bible, I wish I had read the Bible. So, brethren, let's turn to one final scripture here. 
in Proverbs, the John 14, rather, John 14, and verse 26. John 14, verse 26. You know, I first started studying the Bible. I, Mr. Armstrong said, well, if you don't understand the Bible, start reading it on your knees. And I started reading the Bible on my knees, and I'd start underlining it. And I noticed in John 13, John 14, John 15, John 16, was a repetition that Jesus said, if you ask anything of the Father in my name, I will give it to you. And it began a study where I found the Bible connects certain thoughts, and there's certain threads that follow through from one part of the Bible to the other. And I've mentioned to you before, I think in our Bible studies, that when you take a look at the, at the book of Galatians and you take a highlighter and just put a highlighter on all the words that say circumcised, circumcision, uh, you'll find out there's a different context for the book of Galatians. It just pops out of the Bible at you, and you can see the context for the book of Galatians. John 14, verse 26. And as I began to underline the Bible in my personal study, I began to remember scriptures more. So he said in verse 25, John 14, These things I have spoken to you while being present with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, which the Father should read, will send in my name. He will teach you all things. Yes, God's Spirit opens your mind to the truth. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I have said to you. But God will bring to remembrance only what you have put into your brain and your mind in the first place. So as you study God's Word, and I claim that promise frequently, I ask God to bring to my remembrance what He's taught me through His Spirit. So brethren, let's read the Bible every day. Mark your Bible. Study one book at a time. Study a topic by reviewing all the subjects or scriptures on that one topic. Or follow along in your Bible with you as you read the booklets and the Tomorrow's World Bible Study Course. So brethren, know your Bible and use the Spirit of God, the Word of God, every day.